66 prophecies were fulfilled. If there are 153 prophecies, I've never counted them. I know there's a bunch of them. If there are 153 prophecies about the coming of Jesus, and if 196 of them were fulfilled at his first coming, that means there are 257 signs about his second coming. Now, it is obvious from Scripture that we are told that no man can know the exact day or hour. But that certainly doesn't mean that we're supposed to be in the dark about the end times or about the season. The fact is, uh, we need to be aware of the fact that Jesus is coming. And God has given us this wonderful book of Revelation. If you have an older uh, physical hard copy Bible... You will notice at the beginning it will say the revelation of St. John the Divine. It's a good term because it was, John was the author and he was revealed this great truth about the coming of Christ. But the real title of the book of Revelation should be, and that is actually what the book, uh, the Greek term revelation means, it is the apocalypse. It is the unveiling of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Speaking of uh, the day of uh, the future and the day that we might die, I heard about a new pastor that came to a church, and a woman asked her new pastor, she was trying to make sure she got her arrangements taken care of, and she said, you know, when the day that I die, and eventually that time comes, I was wondering if I could have a church service here in the building. He said, well, of course, the new pastor. He grabbed out his date book, and he said, what day do you want? (laughs) Now, the fact is, the, death of our, the day of our death is coming. I'm not sure when, but I'm not ready to put my name on a date yet. But the fact is, Jesus is coming, and we're going to meet Him. Let's uh, look into this book this morning. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Father, we thank You, and we know that there is a date set for us, Lord. You say that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, Lord, we're going to meet You. And we pray that You will bless us today. Give us insight into Your Word. I pray for your uh, anointing, Lord, on both the speaker and the hearer. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn me up just a hair. We are going through the book of Revelation. We began a little uh, style last year. We called it Revelation Revealed. And so we went through the first uh, three chapters in a way uh, last uh, January. And so my thought was that every January, for at least a time, unless the Lord makes me change my mind, we would go through a chapter at a time, basically. And so that's what we've done this January. So this is the last of the series on uh, the book of uh, Revelation. You'd say, man, you mean you're going to make me wait a whole year to go to chapter number eight? Yep, the whole year. You got to stick around. But we have been going through the book of Revelation, and we are learning about the future of this world. And certainly, uh, we uh, saw last week, it is a time of unbelievable terror. And surprisingly, it will come from the hand of the very one who made this earth, the hand of our wonderful, sweet, precious, gentle Savior, Jesus Christ. We saw last week that there is a scroll. It is the title deed to the universe. It is the the blueprint of what's going to happen. It's a scroll. And uh, the King James calls it a book, but it's really a scroll. It has a seal every so bit. Many of them would be 20 and 30 feet long. 
So this particular scroll is opened, and then a seal is there, and then opened up, and then another wax seal, and each one by one. We notice the first seal was false peace. The second one is war. The third one was famine, and then pestilence, sickness, and then finally death. And the sixth seal, fear. Surprisingly, the Bible says that mankind will never, ever believe or even connect the dots that this might be something from the hand of God. Even today, many people only think about things from terms of so-called science, never imagining that God's in charge of the weather and God's in charge of the catastrophes in this world. The fact is, on that sixth and final uh, seal that's opened, all of a sudden people began to realize this is the hand of God. And they cry out, but unfortunately they cry out to the mountains for their help. And now, if you want to go back to chapter 6, the last verse, because it sets up what we're going to talk about today in chapter 7. Chapter 6, verse 17, the final verse says this, for the great day of His wrath is come. And look at that last little part there. In fact, let's read it together. Ready, begin. And who shall be able to stand? Now, chapter 7 answers that question. Who is going to be able to stand the judgments of God? Who is going to be able to get through these judgments? Is there anybody who's safe? And the answer is yes. The first group that is saved and safe is the sealed Semites. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Let's, uh, or let me read to you, if you would please, verses 1 through 4. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to the earth, excuse me, to hurt the earth and the sea saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed a hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. We're going to be talking about the, the descendants of Shem, or uh, Semites, as they are called today. Today, if something is against the Jewish people, it's called anti-Semitism. Another name for Jew, which is a derivative of Judas. These are the Jewish people. Look at verse 1, and the very first phrase says, after these things, after what we just read in chapter 6, and we see these, this particular phrase numerous times in the book of Revelation, and whenever we see this phrase, it introduces a new vision. After these things, now we have a new vision. So what happens here? We see angels, very powerful beings, four of them, holding back the wind, standing at the four corners of the earth, Scripture says. Now, a skeptic would say, <laughs> well, and mock and say how outdated the Bible is because are they imagining that the earth is uh, flat and not realizing that the earth is round and can't have four corners? Well, then I ask the question, why are there four points on a compass? And why still today when someone describes the wind, they describe as it coming from the east 
or from the north or from the south or from the west. No, the fact is the Bible is very accurate to describe which direction the wind is coming from. But here in this verse it says the wind was not blowing, not on the earth, not on the sea, no waves were cropping up, no tree was rustling in the breeze. I mean, it was deathly still. That alone should give us an ominous feeling. What was happening? Well, this quite interesting phenomenon here was the fact that this was the lull before the storm. The angels were holding back the wind, the wrath of God. And God was about ready to blow across this earth. You'd say, well, man, he already unleashed so much. The angel of death, the angel of sickness, the angel of pestilence, yes, but that's just the beginning of sorrows, we are told. I was reading this week an interesting story or interesting fact about World War II. I went ahead and found a picture of the particular leaflet, but it is said before the atom bomb was uh, dropped in Hiroshima and the other cities there, that actually America, good uh, people of America, the Air Force and those, they took leaflets in Japanese, leaflets and dropped it, thousands, tens of thousands of leaflets. And here's a copy of one of them, dropped all over uh, Japan. And here is what this leaflet said. It said, attention Japanese people, I won't read all of it, but read this carefully as it may save your life. And you know Japanese, you might be able to see that. In the next few days, the military installation of some or all of the cities named on the reverse side will be destroyed by American bombs. These cities contain military installations and so on and so forth. They're saying, um, unfortunately, bombs have no eyes. So in accordance with America's well-known humanitarian policy, the American Air Force does not wish to injure innocent people. Now gives you warning, evacuate the cities Save your lives. We are not fighting the Japanese people, but the military clique which has enslaved the Japanese people. And it goes on. But I thought that was very precious and sweet. Uh, but you notice they warned a, a firestorm is coming. A great devastation is coming. And that's actually what God is doing here in the book of Revelation. He is dropping a leaflet to us saying, you better get ready. Then verse 2, it says, another angel ascending from the east, having a seal of God, the living God. Now, you can't open the seventh seal, which is a great uh, devastation, until first we have sealed some special servants of God. John is on the Isle of Patmos. It's in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. An angel that comes from the east then would come out of the Holy Land. What is a seal? A seal is something that a person would put on, uh, on a piece of paper, a document, or whatever to authenticate a seal of ownership and a pledge for protection saying, this is mine, do not touch it. And so here comes an angel and he seals these servants of God. He seals them in their forehead. Now it is not... Um, uh, unusual for God to use uh, uh, signs and seals and marks in order to designate His people. You may remember during the time of the uh, Passover back in Egypt, God told His people, I want you to take blood and I want you to put it on the side of your mantle. I want you to put it on the top. 
signifying the cross of Jesus Christ, saying that through the blood of Jesus, I will pass over and the judgment won't be upon your home. The fact is, God is saying here, he's putting a mark. It's not a mark maybe like a cross, but it is a seal on the foreheads of each one. In the later chapters of the book of Revelation, it actually describes that seal. But notice what it says here. It says in these verses, hurt not the earth. We can't harm God's people because we have to protect them. God has not appointed us to wrath. Now, what was that mark? The mark was the name of God on their forehead. And who were they? They were 144,000 Jewish evangelists preaching Jesus Christ. And uh, they are warning the people about sin. Now, we're not going to read actually verses 5 through 8 uh, because it's just a listing of the tribes of, uh, of Israel. But some people and many people, and I suppose us even here this morning, are wondering, who really are the 144,000? Well, I think the, the, one of the rules for Bible interpretation is that we, uh, we interpret it literally unless there's some reason not to. And it's very clear. There doesn't seem to be any picturesque language. It just simply says there's 144,000 Jews of every particular tribe. The only tribe that's missing is Dan. And God adds the half-tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh to make up for Dan. There's a reason why Dan is not in there, but that's not really our message here this morning. But uh, I may mention it in just a moment. But uh, some say that the, the, our friends uh, here in Lodi and other areas, the Seventh-day Adventists, say that, you know what, this 144,000, they are the Seventh-day Adventists. And uh, they will have a Revelation seminar, which they do quite often. And they will say things like, um, these people uh, were people who didn't eat uh, any unclean meat. Uh, they didn't take caffeine. Uh, they always honored the Sabbath. <laughs> but guess what? These are <laughs> these are Seventh-day Adventists. Who would have known? And uh, that's how they kind of connect the dots there, kind of a stretch by any means. The Jehovah's Witnesses think that they're actually the ones who are the 144,000. And their point is this, that if you can knock on enough doors, if you can sell enough literature, then maybe you'll be part of the 144,000. The rest will be here on earth. There is another group that thinks that they are, uh, it's called British Israelites. Maybe you've never heard of that. There is a group of people who feel like that the tribe of Dan migrated to the northern areas of Europe, especially uh, the British Isles and especially um, into Ireland. But the British Israelites are supposedly this 144,000, 144,000 that are descendants of Dan. There are another group called the Flying Rolls. I have no idea what that group is. But anyway, I read about it in Tim LaHaye's book. And, uh, but all of these people think they're part of the 144,000. You say, well, who are the 144,000? Well, it doesn't need to be any big mystery here. God named them from the tribe of Simeon, from the tribe. He goes right down the line there. You have to be an Israelite. You have to be from one of the tribes. And so they, the question quite clearly is, if you're talking to someone from one of these groups who think they're part of the 144,000, you just ask them, just say, what tribe are you from? <laughs> What tribe is your from? And if they can't give you an answer, sorry, you're not one of the 144,000 because you will know, the Bible says. You'd say, well, does any Israelite know what tribe they're from? Nope, nobody does. 
Why? Because in 70 AD, every last uh, record of any particular tribe, any particular family of a tribe, was destroyed in the desolation of Jerusalem. But that doesn't mean God doesn't know. The fact is, God isn't finished with Israel. And mankind hates Israel. And for some reason, they hate them. That's because they're God's chosen people. And God has always had a favorite place in his heart for Israel. In fact, he, one prophet calls Israel the apple of God's eye. It's an amazing thing. Of the six billion inhabitants of the earth, there's only 13 million Jewish people. 40% of them live in that Palestine, that, and that Canaan land, lived in Israel. 40% live in America, and the balance live around the world. And yet, though they have less than 1% of the world's population, do you realize that Jewish people have received more than 22%, a quarter of the Nobel Prizes? They are a blessed group. They are certainly have the favor of God. The sealed Semites, the 144,000 spirit-filled Jewish evangelists all over the world preaching the gospel. Can you imagine? I mean, it's rare to even find a Jewish person that honors Jesus Christ as their Messiah, let alone 144,000 of them preaching the gospel. Amazing. The sealed Semites. Then number two, we find the suffering saints. The suffering saints. But there's another group. Not only Jewish soul winners. Let's read verse 9 together. In fact, let's read it uh, out loud together. Ready, begin. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. Behold, it says. Whenever you see that word, behold, it's a uh, it's meant to be a shocking exclamation. It's meant to be, listen, see this. This is amazing. Behold, this is a different group than the 144,000. It is a great group to remember. It is a mass of humanity crossing all barriers, crossing all languages, crossing all nations, people who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd say, well, how did they get saved in the tribulation period? We mentioned that last week. We'll talk a little bit more about it here. But think about it. These are people who have gotten saved. Now, some people believe that if you ever heard the gospel in this age, you won't be able to be saved in the tribulation period. I don't think that could be true because then that would mean, because a lot of them get saved, then that means that the oldest possible person getting saved in the tribulation would be seven years old because the tribulation is seven years. That meant they all got born maybe during the tribulation period. And so I don't think that's actually true, although we'll see in a few moments why it's going to be almost impossible to get saved. But here there are many persecuted believers who have gotten saved and have died because of not taking the mark of the beast. Then there's a flying angel with the gospel preaching. The only time God ever uses an angel to preach the gospel then there are two witnesses breathing out fire and doing great uh, signs and wonders, and they are convincing many people. And then, of course, there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And so 
the greatest revival in the history of the world. I read recently that there are 150,000, they estimate, 150,000 evangelical missionaries in the world today. That's about the same amount as these Jewish evangelists. And yet these are so on fire. Imagine what's going to be happening during that time. It says they are clothed in white robes. Now the word white is not simply the you know, opposite of black. The actual word here means brilliance. The actual Greek word is dazzling. A dazzling, shining kind of white. They were just a translucent, bright, dazzling white. They have palm branches in their hands. Palm branches in Scripture have often been associated with celebrations and with triumph. The ancients loved the palm tree. The palm tree was a beautiful and very useful tree. They used it for so many things. In some of our travels, especially the South Pacific, they uh, used uh, a coconut tree and uh, banana trees. They used the leaves for baskets and still to this day. The the tree itself, the trunk, they used it for rope. I mean, it's amazing the different uses they have. They would often wave these branches like flags at the at, the, uh, at some victory or some celebration. Of course, we know from the Gospels, when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, they took these palms and waved them as palms of victories. But notice this group. They are standing before the throne. How did they get there? They had to die. This is different than the 144,000. The 144,000 are living there on earth. This group is in heaven. They're standing before the throne of God. We saw a description of the throne before. Remember, it has a ruby red, the sardis. It has a, a diamond uh, a base. It has an emerald type uh, uh, cloud over it, a, a, uh, a rainbow. Uh, around it are the four and twenty um, elders, the twelve from the Old Testament, twelve from the New. There's the fourth cherubim. It is this amazing place. These people have died because of the gospel. Some have just died during all the things that have gone on, but many have died because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast. And because of that, they didn't worship Satan. And their souls left their bodies. Their bodies went to the dust or was down in the earth or was blown apart or in the sea or whatever the case. But were they defeated? No. We find them here standing triumphantly before the throne, and they're about ready to receive their resurrected body. And what are they doing? They are worshiping God. I'll tell you one thing, we need to realize what we're going to be doing in heaven, and we ought to get practice for it now. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Let's read it together, please. Here's what they did. And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. I love that little phrase in verse number 10, our God, our God. I was blessed earlier during one of the choruses. We were singing praise to our God, praise to our God. That's a total change in these people. These people are from all nations of the earth. Many of them are former Hindus, former Muslim, former Buddhists, former people of every kind of a, a secularists and atheists. 
But they got saved. They used to talk about God and they used to talk about it in derogatory terms. You look at the world today and all over the world, God is not being honored. In fact, more and more, there's an anti-Christ bias all over the world. Things are stepping up in China. Things are stepping up in Korea. Things are getting harder for in India. Pastor Mike asks us to praise over there now and wants us to pray for him. It is getting harder in every nation on earth. It's getting harder even in America. And folks, less and less people are saying our God. They're saying your God or that God. But notice all these people, they get saved and they say our God, our God. And what are they saying? They're not saying the white man's God or the brown man's God or whatever God. They're saying it's our God. And then they say salvation to God, meaning we give God all the credit for our salvation. Salvation is from God. Salvation comes because of the grace of God. And notice everybody is involved. Look at verse 11. Angels are praising God. Cherubim are praising God. Now, they've never been saved. They've never experienced that beautiful joy of having their sins forgiven. But that doesn't mean they don't love to praise God. They love to see what's going on on earth. Now, look at verse 12, if you would. What were they saying? Amen. <laughs> That's a very scriptural thing to say. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. And then it says, amen, exclamation point. You've got to love Scripture. It starts with an amen and it ends with an amen. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying amen in church, right? Amen. I mean, it almost sound like, uh, it almost seems like sometimes uh, amens cost $50 a piece, the way people dish them out, you know. I, I said amen last year one time, I think, you know, but folks, we need to say amen, especially when folks are getting ba- uh, saved and baptized and joining the church and good things are happening. I'm all for being dignified, but Folks, there's a difference between being dignified and rigor mortis. I mean, we ought, to, we ought to praise the Lord. I mean, we ought to get practice and say amen because that's exactly what heaven's going to be like. The angels are saying amen and the saints of God are saying amen. And you may not be much of an amen or here, but you're sure going to be one in heaven. You're going to be up in heaven just shouting because you're going to be so excited seeing all these people getting saved. It's just going to be miraculous. Verse 13, then one of those elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? Now this elder knows. I mean, these elders aren't omniscient, only God's omniscient. And yet they know who these people are, but they're asking it for John's sake. They're saying, John, do you know who all these people are? Remember, John is on the Nile. He is either been transported to the future, he's either been transported to heaven to see this future videotape, or else he's just been given a vision. He said, I don't know, frankly, what happened, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. But he gets this amazing vision called the revelation. So here he is. The elders are now asking him, do you know who all these people are? John says, verse 14, Sir, thou knowest. And you got to love his respect, sir. <laughs> sir, he's very respectful. And I think that's a good thing to do to your Bible teacher. Be respectful. Sir, thou knowest 
And he said to me, these are they which came out of the great tribulation. Hallelujah, they have gotten saved out of the tribulation. And notice what it says, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The, they have come out of, there's that Greek word ek, which we see so often in different words, but out of, they, they came out of what's going on, either by martyrdom or by disasters. And actually, the, the grammar states they are coming out, meaning some came out at the beginning of the tribulation, some in the midpoint, and others are still coming out. But it's a process. Now, you'd say, well, what's happening here? Now, there are not every human during the tribulation is destroyed. There are many that are. There are many that are saved and their bodies go to the grave and their souls go to heaven. But there are many believers who actually go all the way through the tribulation period. And how do we know that? Because we're told that in the, in the millennium, people will, the earth will repopulate with humans, not with angels, but with humans. In fact, there's going to be so many people because there's not going to be disease, there's not going to be death, there's not going to be wars. It's a rule of iron. <laughs> Jesus is ruling and just this earth. I mean, and I'm going to be over Lodi, and maybe you're going to be over Stockton, and so others might be over, you know, Lathrop there and Valley Springs and uh, Galt and Manteca, and you're going you're to have a little section to rule, and you're going to be checking on people, and you're going to be having Bible studies, and it's going to be awesome. But we're, the, the saints of God now are going to come back and rule, and they're going to interact with the humans in this earth. But these humans, these people that are, that are saved during the tribulation period are going to enter into the millennial period. But these people are not those. They're not the ones who enter into the millennium. These are the ones who have died because of their faith. Now, I say all that to say this. Some people have the mistaken idea of this. Well, now, pastor, it's very clear some people get saved during the tribulation period. And uh, you know what? That's, gonna, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live the way I want to now. I'm going to do all the things I want to now. I'm not going to give up all my fun just so I can serve God. I'll just wait to the tribulation period. And as soon as I see the rapture, man, I'll just fall on my knees and repent. I'll be one of these people. And if I have to die, I will, but I'm going to get saved during the tribulation period. First of all, I would say this. You should never tempt God. And you should never presume upon the grace and the mercy of God or your ability to accept Christ. Why? Here's what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. This is the Antichrist. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish. Now listen to this. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. If you don't receive the truth here and now, what makes you believe that you'll receive the truth then? Because it says very clearly they're not saved because they wouldn't receive it. How do we know we're going to receive it then? That's a, that's a crazy gamble. Verse 11, and for this God, for this cause, even God sends strong illusion 
It wouldn't be enough if the Antichrist was deceiving people. But now we even have here that God in his righteous judgment, he places a, a veil over the heart and the mind of people that they should believe a lie, that they might all be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Folks, it is a crazy, it is a Russian roulette gamble to imagine that somehow I'm going to live my life like I want now, and someday I'll get saved during the tribulation period. The fact is, there's a large degree of possibility you would never be able to do that, because if you won't believe the truth here, it says very clearly, how would you believe it then? Now let's go back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. It says, they are washed and made dazzling by the greatest detergent ever, better than Tide. What is it? It is the blood of the Lamb. <laughs> now you ladies know this, that blood doesn't make anything white. It makes it stain, doesn't it? But Jesus' blood, a great paradoxical truth, this blood doesn't stain, it cleanses. Look at verse 15, therefore all that are before the throne of God serve Him day and night in the temple. Folks, if you're not serving God now, you better get you better get ready because you're going to be serving God in heaven. He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Saved to serve. Absolutely. By the way, it's interesting about this particular word, serve. It's not the same word as in someone who was, you know, washing someone's feet or doing some menial task. It's actually the word for priesthood. God says you will be a priest before God. And notice what it says before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. What? A temple? Interesting. We are told in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 that there is an earthly temple during the millennium. But there is also a heavenly temple. Now we're told later on in Revelation 21 or 22, I forget which it is right now, the Bible says there's going to be no temple in the future new heaven and new earth because Jesus is our temple. We won't have any need of that. We won't have any need of the sun or any of those things. But it says here in this verse that God will dwell among them. Actually, the literal translation there is put a tent around them, a tent of protection, a tent of security, a canopy to shelter all those who minister for all the heartache they've gone through. Look at verse 16, they shall hunger no more, thirst no more. Neither shall the sun burn on them, nor any heat. You know, the truth of the matter is, people are talking about global warming. It's true. I mean, whether the, whether the earth is already having its redemption groans, I don't know. But there is going to be global warming, global heat. And the sun is going to just beat down. And people are going to fry on this earth. And they're going to die of a lack of food and a lack of uh, water. Can you imagine dying from lack of hunger today, I think I read a statistic the other day that over 20,000 people a day in the worldwide still die of hunger. And that's with all the resources we have. Can you imagine what it's going to be like during the tribulation period? But for people who refuse the mark of the beast, they can't, they can't buy things. They can't sell things. So they're not going to have the ability to get food, let alone all the atmospheric conditions that are happening. And God said, you're not going to hunger anymore. You're not going to thirst anymore. I've got a canopy for you. I'm gonna, you're going to dwell with me. 
And I love verse 17, one of the sweetest verses in all of the book of Revelation. For the lamb and the lamb, the lamb becomes a shepherd, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them. A lamb feeding? That sounds like a shepherd. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. He feeds me. He leads me. The lamb feeds them. Who is this lamb? This is the lamb of God. This is the lion of the king of Judah. And he shall lead them to living fountains of water. He's going to say, you're never going to thirst again, my precious friend. And then listen to this. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. All tears from their eyes. Folks, there's a coming a day when Jesus himself is going to wipe all tears from their eyes. All these people who have watched the travesties of this world. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, as I look all over this world, righteousness is trampled. Truth is being shoved out. It is a sad and an evil day in our country. And I was absolutely brokenhearted and incensed at the same time this week that this past week, for the first time in history, in American history, the New York Senate stood and cheered as they passed a law that a human baby can be aborted up to the time of its birth. Nine months they will allow a doctor to poison that baby and then chop it up in pieces and take it out of that mother. For the first time in human history, such a barbaric thing is being done by the very government. For the first time in history, I read this week that now a man is, wants to be the candidate for the President of the United States, a man and his husband. We seem to be losing ground all over. We see people, God's people, being put down. And I think of the millions, millions of people who are being put down and the millions of babies who are being aborted. And I say, no wonder God in His wrath comes. The angels are holding Him back. They're holding Him back. And then all of a sudden they say, all right, we have sealed these 144,000. Let the wrath of God continue. And the Bible says that there's going to come a point at one point where the blood is going to run so deep, it's going to be as high as a bridle on a horse. God is going to come in this world in great wrath. One of the most interesting words in the New Testament is the word Maranatha. It's an interesting phrase because it's not Hebrew nor is it what's typically written in the New Testament, Greek, or even Aramaic. It's a Syriac word. It was almost a code word. And the New Testament churches used it. The New Testament churches would walk up to each other. People in the church would say, Maranatha. The other one would say, Maranatha. They would finish their services by saying, brothers and sisters, Maranatha. It means the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. What a revolutionizing thing it would be if we would wake up every morning and say, Maranatha. We would see somebody and say, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. I think they gripped that more in the early church because of all the persecution. The folks, that day's coming for us. 
the God that we, that we worship created at least 100 billion galaxies. In fact, many astronomers say that there are 200 billion galaxies, like the one galaxy that we have, but a 200 billion of them. Imagine when that same God who created 200 billion galaxies has created this heaven for those who love him. I read this story this week and it uh, struck a chord with me. And I close with it. Many years ago, there was a man who conned his way into the orchestra of the emperor of China. He could not play one note on his own. Whenever the group practiced or performed, he would hold the flute against his lips, pretending to play. But he needed the money and wanted the prestige of the position, and so he enjoyed a comfortable living. But then one day, the emperor requested a solo from each musician. The flutist got very nervous. Wasn't any time to learn the instrument, so he pretended to be sick. But the royal physician was not fooled. And on the day of his solo performance, the imposter took poison and killed himself because he was afraid. And that's where we get the phrase, afraid to face the music. And folks, we are going to face the music. The day will come when you will face the music. You'll be separated from everything and everybody you love. You and I will stand before God and we will face the music. We will give an account of our life and our decisions. And I say this this morning, these things that we're talking about may seem somewhat fanciful, but I tell you on the authority of God's word, as far as I know, these are 100% accurate and they are our future. The future is now. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed.